0: Oh, good morning. When Jesus was brought before Pilate on the charges of insurrection, Pilate asked him and said, Are you a king? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting for me. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate said, So you are a king. Jesus said, You're right in saying I'm a king. And then he said, For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate said, what is truth? And he turned and he walked away. We have here in the 18th chapter of John, Jesus tells us the very reason that he came into the world, to be a witness to the truth. And I wish that Pilate had waited for the answer so that John could have recorded it for us. What is truth? How would you answer this question? Sometimes the the simplest words are the most difficult to put into a definition. I came across this definition in the Cambridge Dictionary. It says truth is a fact or a principle that is thought to be true by most people. According to this, the truth is what the majority believe it to be. Truth is based on an opinion, but this is not the classical understanding of the word truth. R.C. Sproul was a Reformed theologian who lived in our lifetime, and he said that truth is that which corresponds to reality. In other words, if what we say and what we think align with what is real, if they align with how things actually are, this is truth science is a search for truth the goal of science is is to understand things about our universe that are presently not understood science is a, a study of the physical world that we live in but when Jesus said that he came to bear witness to the truth he was talking about a truth that went beyond the physical he was talking about all of reality why are we here how should we live our lives what's our eternal destiny jesus answered these questions for us in this morning's text paul tells timothy that the church of god is the pillar and the foundation of these truths first timothy chapter 3 beginning at verse 14 he writes although i i hope to come to you soon I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Here, Paul tells us the reason for his letter to Timothy that those in God's household will know how to conduct themselves. Over the last couple of weeks, josh has gone through the qualifications and the duties of the leaders of the local church and paul is going to continue some of this in chapter five but he pauses from this and he turns his attention to timothy and his role as the overall leader of the ephesian church and we're going to see that his message will be teach the truths of god and put an end to false teaching in the church But he starts in verse 4, saying that they are members of God's household, which is the church of the living God. The word church in the original language would be a gathering of those who are called, those who are summoned. And this is what we are as followers of Christ. We've been called by God and gathered together as members of his family. We are his gathering, his church. And then he says... The church is the pillar and foundation of truth. What do pillars and foundations do? They support and they hold up a structure. And this is what Paul says is the role of the church, to hold up the truth. But what does that mean? By looking at nature and the world around us, we might come to the conclusion that all of this could not possibly be here by accident, that there must be a God who created this orderly and this complex universe that we live in. But nature can't tell us anything about who that God is, what kind of God is he, or about his attitude towards creation. But more importantly, nature cannot tell us anything about his attitude towards us. It can't tell us about the relationship that we have with him. In this life, or what's in store for us after this life. These things can only be known if God chooses to reveal them to us. For thousands of years, God revealed himself through the interactions with the people of the nation of Israel. And even though they disobeyed and rebelled against him, he never turned his back on them. He promised to send a Messiah, one who would restore the relationship between himself and mankind, someone who could lead men and women into his kingdom. This is the truth that the church has been entrusted with, that God not only exists, but that he's made a way for men and women to have eternal life as members of his kingdom. This is a truth that could never be discovered Apart from God's decision to reveal it to us. And this is the message that the church has been commanded to bring to the world. And you you may never have thought of the church in this way. But the church, we, have been entrusted with the awesome responsibility of bearing the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth about all of existence. It's as if we have been given the chance to peek behind the curtain and to see and to understand things that otherwise could never have been known. Paul calls this a mystery, something that is now revealed, that was previously concealed. He says in verse 16, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up into glory. What is the mystery that Paul is speaking of? We're going to see that it's Jesus Christ. And he says that from this mystery, that is from Christ, springs true godliness. And we're going to see this. These... Six verses are believed to be a very early Christian creed. For the first couple of decades after Jesus' life and before the Gospels were written, his followers developed creeds and hymns that they committed to memory. We find one of these creeds in 1 Corinthians 15. That it's, it, it's a creed that lists the, the eyewitnesses to Jesus, his resurrection, and the events surrounding his death and his resurrection. Another creed is in 1 Corinthians 11. It's often used during communion services. And the creeds continued on into church history. Some of you may have come from churches with backgrounds where the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed was read as part of the weekly service. The creed here in verse 16 are statements of faith about Jesus Christ that were committed to memory and recited by his early followers. He appeared in the flesh. speaks of Jesus' incarnation. That the second person of the Trinity came to earth and took the form of a man. Beginning from his birth until Jesus returned to heaven, he had a physical body. And this was an important thing for the early church to establish because there were false teachings at the time that taught that the material world was evil, and therefore Jesus could not have had a physical or material body. So it was important for the early church to stress that he appeared in the flesh. But some scholars think that the real emphasis here is on Jesus' bodily resurrection and his appearance his followers those that saw him and walked with him and ate with him and touched him after his resurrection was vindicated by the spirit vindicated means that there's evidence to prove that proves someone to be right in his letter to the romans paul said that we can know that jesus is the son of god because he was raised from the dead in chapter 1 he says and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus' claim to be the Son of God was validated by his resurrection from the dead. Was seen by angels. The Gospels record two instances where the angels ministered to Jesus. One in his uh, temptation in the wilderness and the other during his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. But this could also be referring to something mentioned in 1 Peter chapter one, that even the angels of heaven were astounded to observe the events of Jesus's life on earth. What's preached among the nations was believed on in the word. By the time this letter was written, the churches had been established in Israel and in Asia Minor, Greece, Rome. The Book of Acts tells us that at Pentecost, there were 120 followers of Jesus. Within 20 years, that number had grown into the thousands. It was taken up in glory. We find in the Gospels in several places in the Book of Acts accounts of those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ascension into heaven after his resurrection. This six-line creed gives testimony that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of God's promise made in the Old Testament. What was previously unknown or maybe only partially understood has now been fully revealed in the person of Jesus. And we see this throughout the New Testament. The letter to the Hebrews begins with the words, In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. But my favorite is when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And he catches up with the two disciples who had lost hope that Jesus was God's promised Messiah. And Jesus said, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself what paul is saying is that the mystery from which true godliness springs is christ and don't miss this this is the truth of god this is the truth that the church is entrusted with this is the church that we this is the message that we're supposed to bring to the world the mystery from which true godliness springs is Christ. Every religion in the world expects godliness from its followers. Every religion has its own system that teaches men how to be right with God. But Paul says that godliness, true godliness, is through Christ. There are a lot of counterfeits, and we're going to look at some in the next few verses and then again next week. But true godliness springs from Christ. And how can we be sure? Because God raised him from the dead. We saw that in the creed, that he was vindicated by the spirit. Remember that truth corresponds to reality. If Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact that actually occurred in human history, then Christianity is true. If he did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is a hoax. It's nothing more than another and a long line of empty moral philosophies about how to live life. And this is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul said that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he could say this because he had met the risen Christ. What does he mean when he says that true godliness springs from Christ? The word godliness in the original means those things that are well-pleasing to God. So then how does Christ make us godly? How does Christ make us well-pleasing to God? The first way is that Jesus died for our sins and took the penalty that was ours. We are now forgiven and accepted into the household of God. We are members of his family with the promise of eternal life with him. God no longer sees us as rebellious enemies, but instead he sees us in Christ. Jesus's righteousness is now imparted to us. This is why Paul always uses the phrase in Christ. Those who are in Christ are declared righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ. We were once enemies, but now we're pleasing to God. Christ has made us godly. The second way is through the transformation in our lives. Religion develops systems and rules so that for people to live their lives by in an effort to be pleasing to God and to somehow to win his favor. But the good news of the gospel is that Through Christ, we are already accepted by God. We are already in his favor. If we're in Christ, there's this inward transformation within our lives so that we want to live lives in a way that's pleasing to him. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you see, first we're saved through the free gift from God. It's not of our own doing, it's a free gift. Only then do we go out and live lives that are pleasing to him. And for those of us who know Christ as Savior, we have experienced this, right? There's a transformation within us, this, this longing to know him better and to be pleasing to him. This is the holy, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's a supernatural component to the Christian life. We accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. He fills us with his Spirit so that we can go out and live godly lives. The Christian life is not a lifelong struggle of gritting our teeth and trying to be pleasing to God. He has given us his spirit who creates that desire within us to know him and to be pleasing to him. And there'll always be times when we feel that tug to go back to the old way of life, but the overwhelming uh, desire of our lives is to be pleasing to him, to live lives that are Christ-like, to be godly. And this All of this is the mystery of godliness. This is the truth that's been entrusted to the church, that only in Christ can men and women be rightly related to God and live lives that are pleasing to him. Paul sets all of this up as a reminder for Timothy. Packed into this six-line creed are the years of theology and the teaching that Timothy had received as Paul's traveling companion. And after reminding Timothy of all of these things, he then warns him to guard this message. He switches from the, from the affirmative, and then he goes to the, more towards the negative. And, seven, and having affirmed what is the truth of God, he's now going to warn Timothy to guard against false teaching. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, The Spirit clearly says, that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. There were those in the Ephesian church that were teaching things that were contrary to the apostles' doctrine, contrary to what Paul and the other apostles had learned from Jesus and what the spirit had revealed to them. This wasn't new for Paul. We see this throughout the book of Acts and in so many of Paul's letters. He was constantly battling those who were attempting to distort his teachings. What's interesting is that Acts 20 records Paul leaving Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, and he tells the elders there in Ephesus to keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, and know that after I leave savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Ten years later, we find Paul writing this letter to Timothy because the church of Ephesus is dealing with false teaching. And it's difficult for the scholars to 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 completely and and with certainty understand exactly what this heretical teaching was. Sometimes reading Paul's letters is like like listening to one half of a telephone conversation. You almost have to guess at what the other party is saying. Josh mentioned over the past uh, few weeks that some of the influences may have come from the temple, the pagan temple of Artemis. Another major influence in the first century was something called Gnosticism. This was the belief that the physical world was evil and that only the spiritual world was good. Another early influence was from a devout group of Jewish followers called the Essenes, and they were known for their asceticism, their self-discipline and uh, avoidance of physical comforts and pleasures. These were some of the kinds of influences that were creeping into the early church. If you look back at chapter 1, when we were there, Paul told Timothy to command certain people not to teach false doctrine anymore, any longer. These weren't outsiders, they were members of the church. Paul says in chapter 1 that they once held to the pure teachings but had departed from these and gone to false teachings. Paul says that these false teachings had caused some to abandon the faith. In verse 3, he says they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. But then he says, God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected, if it's received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Notice that he says, "By, by those who know the truth. We can know the truth of God because it's revealed to us in the scriptures. Everything that God created is good, and when it's used in accordance with his divine intention, all of God's creation is ours to enjoy. So when he says, They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Genesis tells us that God created Eve because it wasn't good for man to be alone. Throughout the Old and the New Testaments, we see that marriage is held in the highest honor as part of God's plan for humanity. And even though the Mosaic law imposed dietary restrictions on the Jews in the Old Testament, Acts 10 tells us that God lifted those restrictions and told Peter to eat those things that were previously restricted and to no longer call unclean what God had called clean. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse four. He says, for everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. When he says that nothing is to be rejected, he's referring to those things that God created for us to enjoy. He's not suggesting that somehow everything is permissible if we receive it with thanksgiving. He's not giving some kind of a license for sinful behavior. Paul is always very clear about this in his writings when he calls the deeds of the flesh, where he lists those things that are sinful. We saw it in the first week where he listed those things done by those that he said were ungodly, sinful, unholy, and irreverent. So he's not giving a carte blanche for every kind of behavior if we simply give thanks to God. But no, he says that all things are good and nothing is to be rejected when used in accordance with his divine intention and his purposes. And how do we know his intentions and his purposes? They're made known to us in his word. Jesus said that those who are members of God's kingdom will bring forth Fruit of that kingdom. And when we enjoy those things that God has given to us, we are to give Him thanks. Unfortunately, we very often take for granted God's provisions and His blessings. I remember a story of a, a little boy who went to dinner at his friend's house. And when it came time for supper, he bowed his head and waited for the parents to pray. But the mother said, oh, Johnny, our family doesn't pray before meals. And the little boy said, oh, oh, okay, kind of like my dog. He just digs in. <laughs> you, you know, unfortunately, all of us are guilty of this in, in one way or another. You know, we watch our, little, our younger children just assuming that there will be food on the table, clean towels in the bathroom a warm house in the winter. But how often do we, too, just take for granted the simple things that God provides for us every day? Even, even the gift of life itself. Paul says that all things are consecrated if they are in alignment with God's word and received with prayerful thinking. There's so much that we looked at this morning, but as we close, I don't want us to lose sight of this overall point from Paul. The church has been entrusted with the truths of God. These are things that could never have been known apart from God having chosen to reveal them to us. These things are to be taught. They're to be guarded and protected from false teaching. This was the charge to Timothy, and it's the charge to all church leaders today. But what's implied in this is that the congregation then has a responsibility of learning and becoming mature in these truths. It's the responsibility of the leaders to teach, but it's the responsibility of the congregation, us, the congregation, to learn. To know the gospel message, to know the teachings of God's word, to be prepared so that we can recognize false teaching. And how do we do this? Through our own time of reading, our own study, Sunday morning teachings, maybe in our community groups, and there's a variety of other ways. But it's our responsibility to be maturing in the truths of God. Starting today, right after this service, Jenna mentioned it. And continuing for the next seven seven weeks, we'll be offering Starting Point. This is a very informal setting where we'll go through what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this is a perfect setting for those who may be from a different church background, or maybe you have questions, or maybe you even have doubts about your faith or spirituality. The title of this series is Irresistible. And the truth is there is nothing more irresistible than the free gift of salvation that God offers to us. And I would be be negligent if I didn't pause here to say that the gift of eternal life is available to each of us. But that gift is only through Christ. This is the good news of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus died on a cross, paid for your sins and mine. But you have to reach out and you have to accept that gift. It's a private conversation between you and God. It has nothing to do with being a member of a church. It's your personal choice of asking Christ to be your Lord and Savior. This is God's plan of salvation. There is no other, but it's not more complicated than this. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we we thank you for Christ our Lord and the salvation that we have through him, that you allow us to be participants in your kingdom, both now and into eternity. Our prayers, Father, is for our world that has lost its way. All of the the war, the evil, the suffering that we see, whether it's in Israel or the Ukraine or so many other parts of the world. We live in a fallen and broken world. And, though, Father, that we are not deserving, we ask that by your mercy that you would bring peace and healing to this broken world and comfort to those who are suffering. And we pray for revival among your church leaders and your people with a renewed desire to bring the gospel to the world and to proclaim Jesus as Lord of all. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.